Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to ask you, what makes you mad? You may be aware the Cowboys are not in the Super Bowl. That doesn't make me mad anymore. Used to, then I got used to it. (laughs) Actually, they're going to be there. They got free tickets in section double E up there in the nosebleed section. So uh, on Friday of last week, Zola Wilson was driving on Highway 69 North. And a Kansas City Southern truck in front of her threw up a rock and it hit her windshield. And she immediately got mad. According to news reports and police reports, she sped around that truck that had thrown up the rock and damaged her windshield, got in front of it, slammed on her brakes. And the driver of that Kansas City Southern truck slammed into the back of her car. Behind that truck was another truck with Gary and Lisa Naquin. I'm not sure how to pronounce their last name, but they had taken their two sons, Tyler and Caden, late ages 11 and 5. They had made straight A's in school, according to news reports. So they had decided to celebrate by taking those two boys fishing. They were traveling and were talking about who was going to catch the biggest fish. And when that Kansas City Southern truck slammed into the back of Zola's car, the Naquin truck slammed into the back of the other one, and on Monday of this week, Gary died. I'm, I'm intrigued by the way we as Christian people allow certain things in our lives and we kind of explain them away as just being part of who we are. Anger tends to be one of those things, and in the more lighthearted vein, we go along with the thing, it's all fun until somebody gets hurt. But the fact of the matter is, because we entertain anger in our lives, people get hurt all the time, and we just kind of brush it off as if it's really nothing. So as we start today, I want to ask you again, what makes you mad? We come to this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading in a few moments in verse 21. And Jesus is giving us a sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He has given us the thesis of the sermon in chapter 5, verse 20, where he says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Everything else in the sermon revolves around that statement. He immediately turns upon giving the thesis and he begins now to give us six different examples of what this surpassing righteousness looks like. He knows that we need help. Okay, Jesus, we got the concept, but flesh it out for us. And he begins to do that. And so he says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, let me just stop for a minute and reiterate something I think I've already said to you, but I want to make sure we all get it. Jesus is going to use a basic formula in these six statements that take us through the rest of chapter 5. He will say, you've heard that it was said, and then he'll turn right around and say, but I say to you, that is an incredible thing that he does. He positions himself, and this is the early part of his, of his ministry, remember, he positions himself right up there among all of the authorities of the Jewish religion in doing this. Undoubtedly, those religious uh, intelligentsia of his audience there on the side of that hill probably heard this and thought to themselves, who does he think he is? taking the position of a scribe and a rabbi. 
by the time the sermon is over, we find in the last verse of chapter 7 that they say of him, wow, they marvel at his teaching because he teaches as one who has authority, not like the religious authorities. So Jesus now turns. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with this brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So... If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He uses a term there that we translate as penny. It is the smallest, next to smallest Roman coin possible. It is the equivalent of just a few minutes worth of labor. In other words, you're going to stay in the bottom of debtor's prison until the last cent has been paid. What makes you mad? I have to tell you as we get started here, I've come to you today as a recovering angerholic. I hope that uh, before this is all said and done, you don't write me off as your pastor because I'm going to be rather transparent with you about some of the development that I've had. But what I want you to understand about me is also true about you, and that is that all of us are in development process. Not a single one of us, by the way, if you're visiting with us today, you found the right place. This is not a perfect place. It starts with the preacher and it trickles down from there. Not a single one of us has arrived in the Christian life. We're all in process. And each of us have different points of focus that God is dealing with us. And you've got to know that one of the things that God's dealt with me about through the years has been an anger issue. I hope that by the time we get through the end of this, you'll be going, man, I, don't, if I, don't, I, don't, I get around you and I don't see that in you. I hope you can say that. Because I'm telling you, I'm a recovering angerholic. What Jesus says to us here is that anger is a big deal. So we need to deal with it. So I hope that you'll hear this with both ears today. Don't listen to it for your brother-in-law or for your wife or your husband. Listen to it for yourself. All right? So what does he say? Well, he starts off with the part that we get, okay? You have heard that it was said, don't commit murder, because if you commit murder, you're liable to the judgment. We get that. When that first came home for me as an adult... I was, I'd gotten called to do jury duty. That's why we lived in Odessa. I was probably 19. I might have been 20 years old. I don't think I was. But, uh, so I had to go to the Ector County Courthouse, and I was chosen to be on this jury. Some ridiculous case. Some lady had cursed at some sheriff's deputy, and so they filed charges on her for verbal abuse of a police officer or something like that. And, uh, and you know, she shouldn't have done it, but that was what the case was. And, but it was a typical courtroom dance. You know, they called us up there and said, okay, we're talking behind the scenes over here, so we're going to, y'all need to be here, don't leave the building, but we're going to be back for, you know, for two hours, you just have to kill time. And so I, I went upstairs at the courthouse because there was a murder trial that was going on there that uh, I was familiar with. And the reason I was familiar with it, because I had been at the scene of the murder the day that it happened. 
after it happened, okay? I have alibis in the whole nine yards. <laughs> but it was one of those noteworthy kind of things in Odessa. It was an assassination is what it was. And it was done by a car bomb. I happened to be over in that part of town. And I don't remember if I'd been out all night and was on my way home or if I, for some reason, was up early. I don't know. Those were bad days in my life. But I happened to be over there, and I drove past this parking lot of a grocery store, and it also had a pharmacy there and some other things. And I noticed that there was all kinds of emergency responders over there, lights flashing. By the time I, you know, obviously I'm, you know, nosy, so I went over there to see what was going on, and they had crime scene tape marking off that whole thing. And there was a pickup truck that was in thousands of pieces. It was parked in that parking lot, but the, the guy who lived there was actually across the street where he lived, and he had parked his car there during the night, and somebody was out to get him, and so they planted a car bomb, and so when he got in that morning to take his daughter to school, he turned on his car, his truck, and it blew into a thousand pieces or so. Well, that murder trial was going on while I was at the courthouse that day, and so I went up to see what was going on. Never seen a murder trial, and because I'd been there that day, I wanted to see how it went. And I remember for the first time in my adult life, sitting in the back of that courtroom, watching what was going on as some forensic expert was up there telling about all this stuff. And I was looking at the back of the head of the defendant, thinking to myself, how terrible would it be to have your fate for the rest of your life wrapped up in a group of people who were deciding whether you would go to jail, live, or die. we get the first part of what Jesus says. Don't murder or you're going to go to jail. The problem for us with that is, and Jesus knows this is true of us, the problem with that is that none of us, I'm guessing this is true, none of us in this room are guilty of murder. If you are guilty of murder, then thank you for controlling your anger today. I just appreciate that. But you know, churches have happened where, I mean, it's been true where somebody goes into a church full of something and starts shooting up the joint. Probably none of us in here are guilty of murder. But Jesus doesn't let us off the hook, and that's what I want us to get from this. Jesus takes us from the surface level, which is the religious response, don't commit murder, but this is a religion of the heart. And Jesus moves us to the root of murder which is anger. And he pulls us down and he pulls us in and all of us stand guilty. Now I want to make sure that we understand the word that he uses here in verse 22, but I say to you, whoever is angry. Now that's not the flash kind of anger, although I think that fits into what he's saying. You know the flash kind of anger when somebody says something to you and you just reach around and smack them? Oh, you don't do that? <laughs> but you think about it, don't you? That, that's that flash kind of response. Jesus uses a word here that specifically refers to that boiling, internal, seething kind of thing that says, I'm going to get you when I get my chance. Like this. Now, I told you that I'm a recovering angerholic, and so let me, uh, let me expose a little of my background with you here. I have a brother, uh, only one, Praise God for that. Um, but my brother is uh, very special to me. I love him to death. We've always had a good relationship. 
Um, but he's made me mad a number of times in my life. One time we lived in, Ode- uh, excuse me, in Hobbs. I was a youth minister at the time. And God called us to Hobbs. My brother was also in the church where I was serving and uh, actually was one of the youth workers, which I love because he's two years older than I am, but I was his boss in that con- context, and that was really special. Um, now, when I moved to Hobbs and that particular church, uh, that church had perfected, their youth group had perfected the fine art of practical jokes. And, and I grew up in a family where practical jokes, we did that kind of stuff all the time, picking and cutting up and all that kind of, we were pretty good at it, but when I went to that church, they perfected that. And so, on this one occasion, there was collusion between the 8th grade Sunday school class and the 12th grade Sunday school class. My brother worked with the older ones. And the 8th graders got a hold of me and they said to me and Teresa and our kids, we're going to have a pizza fellowship over at such and such place. Come join us. So we did. And so we left the house. Big mistake. Because when we left the house, the 12th graders came in behind us I'm pretty sure they broke into the house. I don't remember leaving it open. They got into the house, into my garage. Okay, don't do this, teenagers, okay? Don't do this, to me especially. Uh, But they, they took, you know Oreo cookies? Hello? They took Oreos. How are you supposed to eat those things? You twist them off, right? They twisted them off, licked the white part of it, which is the creamy filling, whatever they call it. They licked it, stuck it on my car. (laughs) Not just one. I don't know how many packages. We got home from the pizza party, and my car that had been left there in the garage had Oreos stuck to it like you can't imagine. Looked like a polka dot car. Now, I have to tell you, my first response was, well, no, that's pretty good. (laughs) Wish I'd have thought of that. And then pretty quickly after that, my response was, wait a minute, how'd they get into my house? Well, you remember that satanic brother of mine that I was talking about? (laughs) But you see, then what happened was I had started pulling that stuff off of there. You know, that creamy filling is based on some kind of, I think somebody told me, coconut oil or something like that. Everywhere they had placed one of those things on my car left a perfect circle of oil. And I want you to know, I got mad right now. And it wasn't the flash kind of anger that, you know, you get it out and then you're okay. This was the kind, as I was cleaning up the garage from leftover Oreo pieces, and I was driving my car down to the local car wash and washing it off and seeing these spots that would not go away, a totally ruined paint job. This was the kind of anger that bubbled up from the inside, and I thought to myself, I'll kill them all and tell God they just died to natural causes. I'd love to tell you that I got over that real quick, but, but I didn't. Orgidzo is the word Jesus uses. It is a word that speaks to an anger that is a pilot light that lights the furnace that just burns continually, causing everything inside to bubble up. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother. Jesus gives three examples in verse 22 
of how that happened. Actually, what I think he's doing here is he's giving us one basic truth in three different statements. There are three examples to be sure, but what I think he's doing is he's showing us how that seething, burning, boiling kind of response that we have ultimately becomes the development of sin and how it tears us and others down. Look at verse 22 again and notice what he says. First of all, he says, you will be liable to the judgment. We've talked about that one already. His, um, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's the exact same statement that he uses about the murder thing. And there's a news flash for us. Because we think, well, if you murder somebody, you deserve judgment. But anger, well, I'm just Irish. It's okay. Or I'm redheaded. And so we just get, you know, redheads. I've known, now, by the way, if you're redheaded, I am not talking about you. All right? I've known people in my past in other places, and they were angry people. Well, I, you know, Brother Mark, I'm just redheaded. All of us redheads are like that. I know I got some redheads in my family, but I got some that aren't. I got some no-headed people. Well, that's a whole other story. Liable to the judgment. The same statement as if you created murder or committed murder. But he goes another step, the second part of that. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. I think it's a twin statement. I don't think he's necessarily you know, saying the third step, but it, it is another kind of part of the development. By the way, some of your translations won't say insult there. They'll actually give a word. It's either R-A-C-A or R-A-C-C-A. Now, the pronunciation for that is kind of lost on us because it's actually a word that is, what's the old uh, English term, onomatopoeia? Yes? I just wanted you to know that I knew some of those words. That is a word that sounds like what it means. The word, if it's R-A-C-A, is raka. But that's really not the way they would have pronounced, uh, pronounced it. They would have said now, what does that make you think of? It is a word that referred to the clearing of one's throat with the intention of spitting in the other person's face. You see the development? It's one thing to think angry thoughts about somebody. It's another thing to spit in their face. That's kind of how sin is, though. What starts internally ultimately gets to be external. And when you give place to the anger, you open yourself up to the attack. And the third one that he gives us here is actually referring to that person as a fool. Now, we need to make sure we get in a first century Jewish mindset at this point to understand what Jesus is saying. To call somebody a fool in the first century Jewish world was effectively to commit character assassination on them and they would have lost face in the community if somebody of importance said of them, you're just a fool. You remember the psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, no God. This is a character assassination. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, when you start with anger, what ultimately happens is you devalue the other person's life. Now, stop for a second and let that sink in. It is so easy for us to say, well, <laughs> I, yeah, I lost my cool a little bit. We soften it down. 
We don't say, I got angry. Say, yeah, well, you know, I just kind of flew off the handle. But what Jesus is showing us is that when we give place to that in our lives, we ultimately devalue, diminish who the other person is. So let me make sure we're all on the same page again. What makes you mad? Look at verse 23. After Jesus lays out how this affects us and our view of the other person, we see that anger is not a personal issue anymore. Now it's an interpersonal issue. And so he takes it to that level, and he specifically ties it to the point of worship. And in doing so, he also reminds us of what we've already seen in the Beatitudes, what we've seen in the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot have a healthy vertical relationship with God if you don't have a healthy horizontal relationship with other people. And so he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Now, let me stop for a second and let's get in first century culture again. Remember that the Jews were called to go to Jerusalem three times a year for the major feast. That's when most of them would go and do their sacrificing at the altar. Many of them would have to walk two or three days to get from their homes to Jerusalem to do this stuff. So when Jesus says, if you're at the altar and you remember... Now, by the way, you see what he says? And you remember not that you have something against that other person over there. You notice how he's turned it now? When you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice, walk two to three days back up to Dan, and get it right and walk two or three days back to Jerusalem and resume your worship. Some scholars tell us it's just hyperbole. Jesus doesn't really intend for them to do that. What he's really telling them to do is to just get it straight. My point for us is we don't have to walk two or three days to get to church. When you come in here to worship and you know that somebody has something against you, what does Jesus say to you? He can get it right. And I'm not a smart man. Just like Forrest Gump, there's a lot of things wrong with me, but I promise you this, if I was a betting man, I would bet you money. And the preachers don't do that. It's not very, very ecclesiastical at all. But if it's a sure thing, it's not a bet. And I would bet you that in this crowd, on any given Sunday, there are people here who somebody has something against them. And they go right on as if it's not true. Jesus will have none of it. Because what he continues to remind us is that our relationship with God is not an externally focused kind of religion. We can go through the motions day after day after month after decade and never have a change of heart. But Jesus comes to change the heart. It is an inside out kind of thing. Our relationship with God is directly affected by our view of other people. Case in point, the recovering angerholic strikes again. 
when we lived in Hobbs, New Mexico, my brother and I, same guy I was talking about earlier, uh, coached our son's soccer team. Now, I have to tell you, the team was terrible. The coaches were incredible, but the team was terrible. It was nothing for our team to suffer defeats, 10 to nothing, 14 to nothing. I was continually on the sideline doing like this to the referee saying, just kill it, just cut it off. One particular day, I, now see, I had been, I told you before, I used to do some mechanic work, and so I had been changing the cylinder head gasket on my car, the same one that was polka dotted by that time. And um, I was eating my lunch, and I was trying to do it by myself in my garage, and uh, it was eating my lunch, and it was time for me to go to coach this soccer game. And so we got out there, and it was a typical day at the soccer field, and our team was getting thoroughly waxed. Now, I should have told you earlier, I am way competitive, way competitive. Uh, and uh, so when we got out, I hate losing. I just hate losing. And so we're out here at the soccer game, and my kids are getting trounced. When in, just like it's true, every time the Cowboys play, it's because of the referees that that's happening. Not so. In this particular day, the referees were, were less than I thought they should be. And I got mad right now. And so I started sharing my opinion with those referees from the sideline. I don't mean just like, hey, hey man, you know. I mean, I was yelling. It was ugly. And I knew at the time it was ugly. Oh, by the way, I should remind you, I was a youth minister at a local church there, and the referees were teenagers. So I went back home after the game, went back out in the garage, and I was working on my car. And I flipped on a CD, Petra, Beyond Belief, a great, great album. And this song came on. It's one of my favorite songs. It's just called Love. It's Petra's interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, no eyes of envy, true love is blind. It says, that's the lyrics of the song. And so I was listening to it and I was trying to worship, you know, because oh, that's a great song. And it got to the point where it talks about how love treats other people. And the Holy Spirit cracked me right in the skull with how I'd been acting and treating people. And I think for the first time in my life, I realized that the way I treated people, in that case, teenage referees on a soccer field, directly impacted my worship. So I got in our other vehicle and I drove back out to the soccer field and I found those kids. And I had to tell them I was sorry. And I was wrong. What Jesus is doing here is he's throwing us off of our religious equilibrium. The things that are the externals that we say, I hadn't done that, or I don't do that. Jesus takes us to the heart. 
and he reveals to us what we started off in the Beatitudes. Remember when I said the Beatitudes are an introduction to the whole Sermon on the Mount? And what he does to us is he comes back and he says, remember, blessed are the peacemakers. And by the way, when you have an anger issue, you're doing the opposite of that. What he does with this is he brings me right back to a place that I find myself in continually, which is the first beatitude, which is blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, those who know you just don't have what it takes to get there. And it forces us falling before a holy God, as Teresa reminded us in Isaiah 6, into the presence of the holy God of the universe, and we fall on our face and say, I can't do this! And he says, exactly. Now I got you where I want you. Because that's where that grace comes in that we sang about. That's where God says, you can't do this, but I can do it in you. What makes you mad? Really? You want a news flash? There is not a person or a situation in this world that has the power to make you mad. It is always a choice. Jesus takes us from murder to the root of murder, which is anger. So if we really want to get better... We need to take another step. What's the root of anger? If you really want to deal with it, then deal with it at the root level. Right? You're going to plant a garden pretty soon. I've been studying up on this stuff. Okay? What I've been told is, if you have a plot of ground you want to plant stuff in, you've got to get rid of the weeds. So that's why I probably won't have a garden. You've got to get rid of the weeds. How do you get rid of the weeds? Well, you just mow them, Right? Wrong. If you just mow them, they're just going to come back, right? Why is that? Because the root's still there. So if you really want to grow a garden with no weeds, then you dig the roots of the weeds out and you get rid of them. And Jesus does the exact same thing with us in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Get rid of the root problem. And even anger, though it's the root of murder, anger has its own root, and it's what I've told you before. It's control. The reason we get anger, angry is because somebody does something that we don't like. Somebody makes a decision somewhere that threatens my control. By the way, you all know that my way is best. Always. Even if I don't know what it is, it's better than your way. Right? Isn't that how we respond in life? And so when your control is threatened... Well, it makes you angry. So Jesus says, you got to deal with it. Let's pray. I know that the tendency is for us to hear this, and some of us are saying, I don't really have an anger problem. Okay, congratulations. But you do have a control problem because that is the essence of sin. I will be God in my life. And... That part of us, left to itself, kills us and others. So let me just invite you right now, where you sit, just you and God, doing business, to take stock of your life. How much of this is yours to take? 
If there's anything in your life that you know is offensive to a holy God, there is grace for you. But you've got to ask for it. Forgiveness, the power to live beyond what we could ever do on our own, it's all available to us, but we have to invite Christ in on it because we can't do it on our own. So I'm just ask you where you sit today. What part of your life does Christ have? I'm not asking you if you know who he is, if you've heard of him. I'm asking you how much control in your life have you given over to him? One of the best ways to answer that question is look at the relationships around you and see what you're creating in other people. Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The fight of life is a draining thing, but grace is incredible. And I offer it to you through Jesus Christ. So, Father, we come asking you to have your way with us. Change us. Those strongholds in our lives that we've allowed the enemy to build up, we pray that even now you would begin to dismantle them. We prefer that you do it brick by brick, but if you need to do it with dynamite, make it so, because we cannot survive outside of you. I pray that today, even now, would be the day of salvation for those who have been trying to go it alone. Do your work is our prayer in Jesus' name.